Hello, Julia. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we were waiting. We were waiting to see who was going to talk first, then, weren't we? Meeting call time on a little bit of positive. Call um, time that means <laughs> or a call, the... yeah, wrong way. Yeah, I uh, bring this this mission, this mesh. Oh, I'm no good at this chairing business. Anyway, <laughs> should we start talking about? I'll take bit... minutes. Yeah, you take minutes, and uh, I'll just talk. Welcome to a little bit of positive, and um, it's it's good to be back. It is. It's been ages. Um, but you've been away, haven't you, Julie? You've been filming. I've been filming. I'm all legal and, and in between yes. lockdowns. Uh, I was filming um, a new series of walks, which have been out on ITV, all around beautiful Cornwall and Devon. And it was a lovely, lovely series to film, not just because we were in beautiful places, but also because I got to, I got to cover lots of topics that you know I'm very passionate about. So I managed to sneak into the series, <laughs> and it really was. It's like by stealth. I, I, I got um, an expert in forest bathing to show me around a gorgeous woodland in a part of Gornwall. I talked about blue therapy and how good the ocean is and how good it is to be close to the ocean. The, the blue gym effect, it's called. I managed to get a little bit about that in because I was nice. filming, filming on the Isles of Scilly, so that was good. And just lots and lots of stuff about mental health and how good being connected to, to nature is for our mental health in the outdoors. All of which sort of wasn't wasn't up there. It sort of we we, we didn't banner this as this is what the the, the series is going to be about because obviously the series was about all the lovely walks that we did and we did eight gorgeous gorgeous walks, but but being able to pop those things in those topics in was really really edifying. It's it's lovely and it's also it's sort of I feel that you're not you're not selling it to the audience. You're not trying to push an agenda. You're just, it, it is absolutely what it's all about. It's like, oh God, you know, looking at this just makes me feel so good. And then I'm talking to somebody else and she goes, yes, it's really good for me. And I find, you know, my day and my mental health is so much so improved. So it was a really, really lovely experience and the audience liked it too. So woohoo. Yeah. Well, I spoke to quite a few people and we wanted more. We did, we thought they were, the, the episodes were too short. We wanted longer episodes. That is what people say, but um, unfortunately, that's down to the slots that are available. Yeah. On the slots on ITV are half an hour slots. And isn't it better that you're leaving people wanting a little bit more than going, oh, it's a bit boring, it drags that's on true. a bit of that. That is true. Always want, leave them wanting more. Always leave them wanting more. And you have not been resting on your laurels because the fabulous blank book is coming out, which is very lovely and positive and um, full of great stuff because people who are listening to this might listen to your in, uh, your other incredible podcast, which is called Blank, that you do with the, the lovely Jim Daly. And now the book is out. It is out. That's what I've been doing. And uh, yeah, it was very enjoyable to make. So yeah, I mean, it's been nice to be to be busy, to keep doing stuff. And we've got a fantastic guest to kick us off with um, the new series. And I'm holding this up to Zoom in case we do do something uh, visual for people to see. There we go. We've got matching books. So Phosphorescence is the name of the book. Mm. And it's by an Australian author called Julia Baird, JB. So obviously I like her already because she's got such great initials. 
Um, but the the title on the book, uh, Foss for Reference, and then underneath it, it says, On Awe, Wonder, and the Things That Sustain You When the World Goes Dark. And it couldn't be more timely. And I know, we know from interviewing her, this was not meant to, this, this wasn't sort of necessarily reflecting the pandemic and the time when the world did literally go dark. It, it mm. just, that was the time. I think she started writing this in 2017 from other bits and bobs that I've read about her. And I really, really like Julia as a woman. She's um, she's very accomplished. She's a TV host over in Australia. She has a nightly News Digest current affairs show. Um, she's very outspoken on uh, women's rights. She's written a book about Queen Victoria. She's just a very positive, and I like strong women, and she's a, she's a strong woman, but with a soft underbelly, which I think is the best kind. Oh, she was wonderful to talk to. It's so interesting. And I had no idea about this idea of phosphorescence. And obviously she explained to us about these kind of midnight swims that she would go out with. And she'd take her kids sometimes as well. And they'd go and they'd be looking for this phosphorescence, this amazing, you know, these amazing creatures. Like this illumination. Yes, yeah, illumination in the sea. It's, it sounds so, like you would like, if you saw the Northern Lights, I guess it would be kind of almost life-changing visually for you. And uh, it was amazing. And what I loved was when she told us the anecdote that she'd been looking for uh, uh, to, to see some of these amazing moments. And then literally down five miles or something down the road, she managed to find something. And she'd been going all around the world trying to find these. these and it was right, right on her doorstep. Right on her doorstep, yeah, which is also ah. wonderful when things like that happen. And I think the wonderful takeaway from, from this chat, and this is what I hope that everybody thinks at the end of it, is um, what Julia is saying in this book. It's not. It's not that we all have to find your your phosphorescence, as in it's a it's a big lifelong adventure to to see this very unique, beautiful thing. It's actually it's this metaphor that phosphorescence is alive inside all of us, and you can find these moments mm. in everything, in every day, and and that's what this whole experience through life has taught her. And it's an interesting book because you can't categorize it. It's not a memoir. It's not. It's not a scientific book. It's a little bit of everything. She's a journalist, and you can tell that because she she, she reflects back on other bits of history and story and shares those. Um, there is a bit of a, a memoir to it as well because she does share her experiences and she got through an illness and so she she faced a darkness that she she had to come up to. And I also like the fact that she she tackles something called Freuden Freuden Freuden. Have I said that correctly? <laughs> I think I've said that correctly. Freuden Freude. Freuden Freude. So Schaden Freude is everything that this podcast isn't about. Mm. So if you haven't heard the expression Schaden Freude, <laughs> organized, yeah, <laughs> organized it together. Schaden Freude is the literal translation because it's a German expression. Schaden mm. is damage or harm, and Freude is joy. So it's the the experience of pleasure and joy and self-satisfaction that comes from witnessing the troubles and the failures and the humiliation of another, which is really dark. But mm -hmm. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all had those moments, haven't we? If there's somebody that you don't really like, and I'm hoping that we're talking about somebody that we universally think might be, might be very wrong as a person that you, and, and if there's, I don't know, is that the same? If, if there's justice and that person gets caught out, is that schadenfreude or is that, is that just, justification and satisfaction and well i'm not sure because obviously we were talking about this before we started recording and we we talked about maybe some public figures that you and i weren't particularly on the same page with 
that's mm. the nicest way I can put it. Uh, yeah. And and was that still Schadenfreude? Because obviously we were quite pleased when, you know, when certain people like that kind of go out of favor the public um, of the public's conscious for a while. And um, yeah, so I don't know really. There must be a fine line. I think there's a bit in the book if I where Julia alludes to um, Gore Vidal, who's a very outspoken. Um, person and uh, acerbic and funny as well yeah 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 and and she says that there's a quote that he said once that um if he sees a friend succeeds a little a little something in him dies which that sounds pretty tragic to me and and I would hate to think that I was ever like that with anybody and um I, I genuinely you know see people doing well I, I, I actively try and encourage them to do even even more because that, that I think is uh, I think it's self-sustaining for yourself. I mean, if you, I think if you, if you, if you're reacting negatively to people doing well, I think that will start to eat away inside at you as a person. Yeah, and I think what what Julia's point is that this this fraud and Freude is the the very opposite. It's the longer lasting joy that you get when perhaps a friend of yours achieves something and does something well. And she she talks about a friend of hers, Catherine Keenan, who was made the Australian of the Year in in two thousand and sixteen. And she and her friends were all buzzing for weeks and weeks afterwards, and they were thrilled and happy for her, and it was an achievement. And she describes this this sort of long lingering joy of that. And um, and that's what we're trying to create on this podcast, isn't it? A long lingering joy, although it just doesn't sound very sexy when you say it like that. It sounds like an illness. <laughs> we don't want anyone to think that we're we're, we're, we're linger. It's the lingering bit, isn't it? The, the joy's all right. Yeah, the lingering just doesn't sound right, does it? So let's let's skip the lingering. Let's linger yeah. no longer, and let's get straight to the wonderful Julia Baird. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this is probably something you can't answer briefly, but for people who don't know, what is phosphorescence? So as a metaphor, I use phosphorescence as the idea of like things that light up in the dark. And it's a phenomenon in the natural world, phosphorescence being um, firstly things that absorb heat, uh, absorb and then, uh, then give out a light um later on that they that they've kind of stored up so when things are dark they can still provide a light and also I do use it interchangeably with bioluminescence which is basically phytoplankton or kind of algae in the water that responds to motion that has this reaction to motion and if people have ever seen it it will be like those neon blue waves um, or the sparkles you get kind of like looks like sequins scattered through the water or, you know, with footprints on the sand. It's so magical. Yeah. But, but Julia, you said there the key word, people who've seen it. I'm not sure how many people have seen it. I think there'll be people listening who haven't even heard about it. Yeah, wow, as a phenomenon. A lot of sailors have seen it. I went back through all the um, shipping records um, because the US started to look into it after the, after the World Wars when submarines, were their, their, their place was being given away um, and they were being shot because they were getting lit up by this phosphorescence. So um, they went back through centuries of sailors just going, what on earth is this? Um, is it Sonoma's fire? Is it these kind of um, milky seas? Is it the wheels of Poseidon? So people have called it and given a mythical status for, for many years. And the thing about it now is that you can never entirely predict. I think there are some tropical islands where it's like very often there. 
but it's very hard to predict when it shows up and how long it lasts for, which is kind of something I love about it. I think probably um, glowworms will be something that everyone's heard of, and that would be that would be a very relatable thing yes, uh, for people worms. to. For, and, and that's what it is, isn't it? It's it's a it's a it's an organism that creates its own light, which in itself, as you say, that sentence sounds phenomenal. I have you seen a glowworm? I've seen glowworms. I've actually filmed with glowworms. I've been lucky enough to, yes, to film what with glowworms. What are the chances? <laughs> what are the chances? Um, and it is incredible to, to see. Uh, and, and it's interesting, you touched on it on the book, um, how we've tried to harness this light sometimes. Human beings have tried to harness light because it, it does seem to be, you know, here we are going through a, a climate crisis, an emergency crisis. Um, and, and one of the things that we, we need a lot of is energy and light. And, and um, bioluminescence and phosphorus has been used, hasn't it, by humans. We have tried to capture it. We have tried to steal it. Yeah, and sometimes very crudely, like, um, <clears throat> you know, Japanese soldiers, well, actually, effectively, that they used to have, like, dried little firefly kind of things and they would crush it in their hands, add a little bit of water and it give them light by which they could read maps that wouldn't give away their location. And in recent times, people have tried to use it with light bulbs to create some kind of energy. And it's used a lot, especially the jellyfish, um, whatever it is that makes the jellyfish glow, um, that protein is used a lot in cancer research. Mm. So it is actually very useful. So what what was it that captured you? How did you, how did you first meet phosphorus? Um, when I was um, a teenager and I just used, we used to just <clears throat> drive up the coast on Sydney's, uh, on the Australian East Coast and arrive at a place called Seal Rocks, which was quite wild and jump straight in the water and it'd be late at night and I would see these sparkles and not really know what it was. And um, I actually became, when I, because I landed on it as a metaphor for what I wanted to write about, which was not like happiness and things that can make you a little bit happier but actually when everything goes dark and you think you just cannot go on <clears throat> what is it that will get you through what are the cross beams of resilience um or what what can we build our rafts of to keep us afloat but while I was writing it I did become obsessed with trying to find it so I was like on all these there's a lot of ghost mushrooms in Australia I was on these pages on Facebook bioluminescence australia i looked for it down in tasmania where it is quite often and didn't really have any luck and then it turned up um in my local wow just when i was yeah when i just when i was finishing it by by chance i was walking down the hill and i bumped into someone they call them the crazies because they swim in the you'll like this julia because they swim in the pitch black black sea black sky the 5 30 in the morning but the crazies, are, and there's only a handful of them, are able to report when there's sparkles. And this woman I bumped into said to me, Claire, she was like, oh, wow, I've never seen anything like it. It's, I've been swimming there for 10 years. So the next morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, I was down there with a little light that you put on the back of your um, goggles that flashes in the dark so we can all find each other. And I was like, I wonder if I will find it weird on the shark front. I mean, you know, I'm not that used to swimming in the dark. And... But the moment I went in, again, it was just like galaxies flying past wow. my face. And we stopped at the, um, 
And so it was one, there instantly. It was there instantly it, it, and responding to the movement. And, it, and it's so balletic because it, it just responds to your movement. So you can swirl and it will swirl. You can dive and it will follow you. And it's kind of like streamers. And we stopped at the point and we were lit up blue. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. Mm. What a moment. A moment that you will never, ever forget. And the oh, fact it was exactly. just... And then I saw it And the fact that it was just yeah. literally down the road from you as well. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> I know. I know. In your, yeah. in your backyard. Yeah, it was like a Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz moment. It was in my home all along. Um, I'm going to read a little a page from your book, which I loved, by the way. Absolutely adored. Um, so what has fascinated and sustained me over these last few years has been the notion that we have the ability to find, nurture and carry our own inner living light, a light to ward off the darkness. This is not about burning brightly, but yielding simple phosphorence, being luminous at temperatures below incandescence, quietly glowing without combusting, staying alive, remaining upright, even when lashed by doubt. That is your book in, in a paragraph there, isn't it? Because it is this incredible searching for the bioluminescence, I can't even say it, phosphorescence. Phosphorescence, yeah. <laughs> that, that has been, that, that has fascinated you for so long. But it is what I love about it, because I talk about this all the time, Giles. I don't, I never get fed up of you talking guest. about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I genuinely believe that we have to, spread awareness with people that nature and that connection with nature is something that's inside us uh, and I, I, I had a, a Twitter conversation with somebody last week and I was so disheartened because she was saying her son she took him for a walk and he said oh it's death by nature mum I was like no there's this magical you know we wouldn't be here without nature and there are all these incredible wonders you know the the phosphorants the mosses that grow in dark, the, the uh, trees that talk to each other, all this stuff that happens that is magical and is life-affirming and life-sustaining. And if we can all just, if we could just grab a little bit of that, it does change your life. It, it does connect you, doesn't it? And, and, and make you understand more about yourself and the world. And it gives you a peace and a contentment and it pulls you out of yourself. Um, yeah, I, you know, what you're saying now, I think that's what I became obsessed with. Like, what is that? What is it? What you're talking about? What's that? Like, and it was when I was writing a piece about swimming. Um, so ocean swimming around a point and across a protected marine park and back again, where I saw astonishing things, you know, just cuttlefish and turtles and beautiful things. <laughs> just, just cuttlefish and turtles. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't get that in the UK, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> Swimming in the Thames, yeah, you might see a few fish, uh, but so our rivers are quite polluted. Swim in the Thames you know, often, to be honest, <laughs> no, we're not. We're not doing so well on uh, marine life. <laughs> well, this wasn't. This was only. But this was protected maybe twenty years ago, and the whole thing has kind of bloomed into life. And it's. I, I was trying to work out like what is it that makes me feel so good, and there's what is it about that experience? And obviously, it's getting up early in the morning and um, getting some exercise and seeing some people and like having a yarn. But there's, I, I decided or kind of realised that it was also about awe. It was about swimming on the edge of this vast ocean and feeling small and also wonder. When I saw this thing, I really, the cuttlefish, I can't tell you how wild they look. They're amazing. They, are so, they look so prehistoric and they're so strange. 
and they will interact with you. You can kind of like go up like that and they'll go back at you. Um, which, which is bizarre in itself. And we should have the, we should have the conversation about um, My Teacher the Octopus, which is a documentary that's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, listeners, then it is definitely, definitely worth watching. And it will, you will be amazed by what is under the water, but also by cuttlefish and octopus. They are, they are clever. Yeah. Oh, so clever. And, uh, and and incredible to look at, as you said. I mean, they mimic you. They they understand emotion. It would seem um, their tentacles are like their own brains. It yes. is absolutely fascinating. Yes, their brains are right through their arms and tentacles. That's kind of stunning. And so they and there's this incongruity about them because they have this kind of ancient. They look like a kind of an elephant head, but with a whole bunch of trunks point coming to an end that they splay. And of course, they do all the camouflage thing. But then they have this beautiful little rippling shawl. Um, around them. I decided I would like to, you know, we never talk about rippling through life, but that's kind of a really good way to get around, right? <laughs> They've given kids those sneakers with wheels. It's like, can we make rippling aspirational? It's so amazing when you watch these things. So, and I realised that, yeah, the, the wonder as well of, of just the complete absorption in something else and being astonished by it and what that gave me, which was just this um, incredible high and I realised that, that we don't talk about awe and we don't talk about wonder. And when we do, we, we treat it almost like it's just serendipitous. It's great if you see a sunrise in the morning and it's great if you see some beautiful trees when you're away for the weekend. But to actually, I realise how important it is, especially when you're going through rough times, to deliberately build the pursuit of those things into your life. And what do you do if you're not lucky enough uh, to live uh, right at the, at the top of a bay where you can access the deep ocean that you can. Um, people ask me this a lot about landscapes and go, well, I don't, you know, I live in a town, I live in a city. How, how do I do it? Yeah. And honestly, urban planners really need to be thinking so hard about this because um, there's a lot of evidence around now. And I really was quite staggered by the, um, and I'm sure you've been through all of this as well, by the evidence about what green can do to people's physical and mental health. Um, and it does show that even plants, even cultivating your own garden or spending time in your local park, all those things really matter and can shift. Like there was a study recently about a year or two ago of 90,000 people, a longitudinal study, and found that those people who'd been exposed to green in their childhood were, um, you know, just had better physical and mental health when they were older and they've done similar things with um, students in dorm rooms, um, better exam results, also in prisons. So this is the Michigan prison experiment. So when they look onto the brick wall compared to having windows that look out onto green, um, those who looked on the green just had better, again, physical and mental health. When they tried it in uh, hospitals, those that looked onto the onto the green through their windows, um, something which, by the way, Florence Nightingale was onto a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But but those who did look onto them um, called the nurses half as often, and asked for painkillers half as often. So it, it's kind of staggering, actually. Yeah, that was that famous uh, Roger Aldrich, I think it was the study in the eighties, where he, it was some some hospital in Pennsylvania. And uh, it was a small study, but still, it is. They needed less pain relief, and and yeah, they needed they needed less help. And I think they left hospital sooner as well. Yeah, because we. Yeah, I was going to say uh, one of our previous guests was Sue Stewart Smith, who's a psychiatrist and has studied loads of stuff about the the, the correlation between 
nature and you know and all these different things like you said like prisoners not reoffending and people were having gallbladder surgery like like you say leaving hospital early it's it's an incredible um thing that we just i think often take for granted yeah i think we totally take for granted but i think there was a bit of a shift during mm. covid actually i know a lot more people took up wild swimming in the uk and just realized how much they needed their little spots of green and their little pieces of you know kind of relief um i hope that translates into caring for them better and creating more of them yeah yeah, me too. Is so? Do you wild swim? Do you open open water swim every week now of your life, whenever you can? Yeah, yeah. Most days, I've just got I'm wet hair from doing it today. Although I got busted <laughs> by a blue bottle, um, so I got a big sting on my hand. But yeah, I do. If I on the days I don't do it in the morning, I um, I feel very strange. It's funny. My kid, he's eleven. He just said to me. Mum, I don't know why he's been thinking about drugs, but he has been. He's like, Mum, I've just decided people were talking about crack and I realised that swimming is really crack. <laughs> you know, like you get weird if you don't do it and um, you kind of go a bit crazy if you haven't done it for a while. And he goes, but I've never known you to do it for, not do it for longer than a week and I don't want to see that. So he was on to it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess it's better that uh, that he's coming to you saying that rather than <laughs> yeah. crack is your crack, mum. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Crack is whack, mum, I've heard. <laughs> but you must be the same, Julia, with your time. Like how do you build that into your day? I'm I'm absolutely, I'm, I, I mean, I, I've used that, that phrase in quite a few articles actually recently. I've, I've just finished a, a new walking series that's been playing out in the UK. So I've been doing lots of press interviews and, and writing a lot. And so many of my articles have started with, I admit it, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to nature. I'm addicted to the countryside. I'm addicted to green spaces. I need it every day. I mean, I live in London. I'd love to live somewhere that was wilder and, and, and I had more green on my doorstep, bigger landscapes on my doorstep, but I don't for various personal reasons. Um, and London is a fantastic city for lots of other, other reasons. But the great thing that we have here in London is really amazing parks. I mean, Hampstead Heath and Holland Park and St. James's and Queen's Park have been just phenomenal green spaces that have been overrun during the pandemic because people are really clamoring what well, it's the it's the only place that we can go to but as you said it, it's that cry it's that call to landscape architects and and gardeners around the world and to urban planners mm. and to governments to build these green spaces back into our urban towns and cities the statistics say i mean in in the uk 80 percent of us are living in urban environments now and, and cities and around the world i think it's about 50 percent, and that is set yes. to it's just mushroom tipped. that's right it's just tipped into 55 just a few years yeah ago, right so so if we if most of us on the planet are going to be living in towns and centers there's your big clue that's this is what we need to be doing we have to make our towns and cities beautiful and lush and green and full of green spaces and full of nature and full of wildlife for us so we can so we can not go bonkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, as what you were talking about before is what they call, you know, biophilia, when the need for nature is is kind of in our bones and it's a part, intrinsically part of being human. Um and people now talk about nature deficit disorder. They talk about it, what what is the absence of nature doing to us, and it's n none of it. None of it's good. No, none of it's good, and it is. It's unfortunately, it's one of those things that until it's all gone, which it almost you know it has been stripped out of so many people's lives. There's a, a scary statistic in the UK that forty percent of children never play outdoors. Now that was pre-pandemic. 
Um, and, and that will have changed uh, during the pandemic because it's become the only space that, that families can go to. But that's incredibly damaging to society. If you have, you know, 40% of your younger population who don't spend any time, significant time outside, outdoors, if they don't know. We've, we've, there are some wonderful books um, about the loss of words in the English dictionary, words like Blackberry that are no longer in, in, in the Oxford Junior Dictionary. Blackberry now is the phone, not, not oh, the berry, wow. not the fruit. <laughs> um, and, and the words that have replaced acorn, um, uh, uh, you know, you everyday common words that have been replaced by tech words, uh, and that that's scary. Let alone the common mouse. But um, yeah. I um, uh, read a lot of Rachel Carson when I was writing this book, and um, I really was struck by an essay she wrote, um, "The Sense of Wonder." Now, obviously, she kickstarted a lot of the modern environmental movement in what it was um, in about 1962. Just before that. Um, in the end of the 50s, she wrote a, a, an article for a women's journal which was about how do you teach wonder to <coughs> your kids? And she says in a, um, if she was a, because she took her, her nephew Roger out, you know, but he was three years old then and he like out looking through the forests and she'd take him by the hand and at night they'd go down to tidal pools and look through it with um, little torches to see what was happening at night. And she said in it, if I had if I could be a, a fairy godmother for every child, I would wish for them a sense of wonder so indestructible that it will last throughout their lives and they won't be distracted, they won't have their attention sucked away by, by all these other things. And she ends up by, like, that's, that's such an important phrase, which is, lest we become alienated from the sources of our strength. And I think that's what we haven't realised. That is what gives us a, a, a kind of strength. And that's really what I realised writing this, and researching it is that this is one of the things that that mentally makes us strong. Obviously, there's physical benefits as well, but um, nature isn't just kind of something relaxing to do. It's a, like a necessity, and and it's a mental muscle building thing too. Mm. What does it does it build your mental muscles? Absolutely. Strong? I mean. I'm very lucky I live on the coast. You know, we are, we've always been very proactive in, you know, making sure that our children get plenty of time outside. And, you know, obviously it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, we, you know, we've taken advantage of that. And, and we, again, we live on the South Downs. There are awe-inspiring um, landscapes, you know, so they are, they are subject to it. But I was going to ask you, actually, you know, what, are, what practical things can we be doing? I mean, Julie, you're... Bradbury can also add <laughs> also add to this conversation. What practical things can we be doing to inspire our children in, to to be more in awe? Um, I think you just need to get them outside and show them stuff. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's very individual. Like they they, they are, you know, scientists are now trying to measure awe through mm -hmm. goosebumps. We're we're all similarly affected by you know massive yawning skies with like with stars that are extraordinary once we're away from light pollution or standing in um you know enormous forests and admiring the moss as julia does or being out in the um ocean everyone will have their own thing that they're drawn to that they adore and it's a question of cultivating it and realizing what that gives you and what that does to you so i just drag them yeah. out it's harder with a teenager yeah. i have to say 
Um, yeah, yeah. But my 11-year-old will still do it. So, yeah. I think that's the threshold, isn't it? Little, the little people, the little ones are easier to convince. Um, I mean, my, my little ones, they're all still under 10. I've got five-year-olds and, and, a, and a 10-year-old, and they still love, love, love trees and climbing trees. And, you know, even they point out, Mummy, look, there's moss. Um, <laughs> yeah. And they get excited about it. So I've still got them as a captive audience. But uh, when I talk to parents, it's once you get into those teenage years that it becomes more difficult. But all I would say to people is, I was that teenager. My dad took me out walking when I was about six or seven. My mum and I used to garden a lot. She's not as outdoorsy, but she was, a, she was a keen gardener and we'd potter around the garden together. And then when I got to 15 or 16, it was about hair and makeup and boys and lots of different stuff going on. And that was fine. And, and you know, and I had a, a, in, my, in those teenage years, it wasn't all about mosses and walking and landscapes, but it did stick with me. And did it come full circle? It certainly has. And, and now, it, you know, it's my life. It genuinely is. It's my career. It's what I, it, it, and it does sustain me. So it is something that it's worth seeding. engaging them with. Seeding in, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The great thing was, as I spoke about finding phosphorescence in my local bay, you know, you have this very last day with a book where you actually cannot touch it anymore. They're like, right, it is going to the printers. And you know, you never really finish a book. You just have to put it down and walk away. So I was down the south coast and um, I, that happened and there was a day I could, but then I couldn't touch it anymore. And then I heard that there was phosphorescence a couple of beaches along. So I threw all the kids in the car and around midnight, you know, and we headed down there. And again, it was this like, I thought there was absolutely nothing at all. And then this big curling neon wave and they just jumped around like fools, you know, splashing, doing the footprints, throwing it on themselves. And it's really actually great to see kids acting like toddlers mm. again, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was great. And they, will, and they will never forget that. That's, oh, no. That, that will be... That that's going to be that's going to be their moment with mum and and uh, with nature when they're 40, 50. Well, they're used to me coming back with wet hair, right, and just saying, "Oh wow, today I saw a Port Jackson shark being born," and they'll be like, "Yeah, okay, what's first? <laughs> But to actually have it see, experience themselves is was really great. Uh, uh, let's talk, Julia, a little bit about the darkness. Let's talk a little bit about the motivation for the book. Um, because you've you've been through illness. I hope you're good now. I hope you're strong and, and, and better, but share as much as you're comfortable uh, sharing about that and that experience and, and how it's reframed life for you. Yeah, well, actually, the first time I started thinking kind of about this idea was actually when I went through a really bad heartbreak, and I had this counsellor say to me, I just called him up and I was like, I just do not know how I'm going to get through this. It was just one of those days I actually genuinely don't know. I'm just so kind of burnt inside. And he was like, Julia, this Chilean guy, he was like, um, he said that someone he someone had once said to him when he was younger, it is now all the books you've ever read, all the things you've ever done, all the people in your life and everything they've ever given you and your family and your friends and all the poetry and blah, blah, now is when that matters. It's now. And I love the idea that you could have a reservoir that you drew on that could give you strength when it felt like everything was bereft and every, you were just living in a, um, you know, in a kind of desert. Um, and then I um, was diagnosed with cancer, a really rare abdominal cancer. And I've had like three surgeries. And then it's a really horrible one, like, because they cut you in half and then 
muck around and then they, and then you get chemo inside you and so you basically just stop functioning for several months you have to kind of walk again and eat again and all the rest of it so um and I, I so I, I really started writing in the middle of all of that like about these things that had weirdly got me through but also with the knowledge that look this is not about saying oh um, you know, let's firstly, like, you don't have to go through, like, something like cancer and then go, oh, I'll be inspiring. You know how that's, like, kind of annoying when everyone's like, and now you must inspire after having survived. And then it's like, I don't want to say, and now you've got to sparkle with sequins. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, uh, yeah, so um, I've just lost my train of thought. It was... Um, you were saying that. Oh, you, I know, this... I know. I was, so it's not about saying, oh, you've had a really terrible diagnosis or you've lost a, a relative or you're, you're having real difficulties with your child, like something really, I mean, so many people out there every single day are deal, dealing with the most horrific grief and pain and all the rest of it. It's not about saying, oh, well, if those things have happened to you, just go out and lie under a tree and you'll feel, you know, everything will be fine. It's not that at all. It is when... You really need it. When you're in a really dark place, what is it that can give you strength? And that's that's kind of really what I wanted to write about. And awe and wonder were a really big part of that. That kind of gives you a certain joy as well. On, well, no, I'm just thinking it's obviously, you know, obviously that's an incredibly challenging point in your life. And to and obviously to be able to sort of write about it now and, and you know, for us to be able to read it as well and get something from it uh you know and the fact again goes back to that that awe thing and shrinking and finding that inner child in a way to to see the world as this incredible place which is magical and wonderful and you know and i guess in those in those moments you are digging into those things a little bit mm. Mm. There's a really beautiful book by a woman. Um, it's something like The Sound of a Snail Eating, and I've forgotten her name, but she was bed-bound for a couple of years and really terribly ill, and someone gave her a plant and it had a snail on it. Mm. And so for this whole period, she watched that snail, and then it had little babies, and then she talked to, and then she looked up, you know, she kind of got really interested in its science and described all its millions of teeth, and it's such a beautifully written book, and you get the sense this snail really saved her during that time which sounds so strange. It gave her something to focus on that was out of herself. And you talked before about the shrinking thing. I, I did come again and again to the idea of being small. I think that we talk so much about needing to occupy space and be big in the world and have command authority and all that kind of thing. And that's fine professionally, like, to do that. But I, I really realised how great it is to be small and because the research shows that when we're when we're kind of dwarfed in that way we realize we need each other we and we're kinder to each other we're more altruistic and we're more likely to basically care for the earth if we realize it i mean really interesting little studies which was which sound odd individually but they really add up like studies like if they got a group of people to stand next to a t-rex and other people did it and they signed their names afterwards and they're they wrote their names smaller. Amazing, you know? yeah. Those people who'd been in a forest with really massive trees came back and were more likely to help someone who dropped something. Um, and there's study after study like that. And I just... Um, 
fascinating, isn't fascinating. it? How it really is. Smallness is great, and it's an ancient wisdom too. This is something First Nations Indigenous people have been telling us for a really long time. And you would know more about that than than many of us. I've I've been to Australia and I and I've spent time uh, interviewing Indigenous people, and I've been lucky enough to spend uh, serious time in forests and and landscapes uh, with Indigenous peoples and their and their elders. And it's just fascinating this knowledge that's passed down through generation that's not written down that is just a it's a learnt thing um and I, I remember the last time I was in Australia I was uh in uh down near uh Cairns and um we stared out at the woodland and the man that I was with said you're just looking at you're looking into a forest he said I'm looking at a medicine basket and a fridge this provides me with everything that I need is here, whereas I would be, you know, three hours and I'd be lost and, and wouldn't know what to do and probably die because I wouldn't know how to how to cultivate and how to to harvest what I needed. Um, and, and yet this is something that he and his peoples and his children just are still learning. And yet we're chopping down those forests all over the world at such a great rate of knots. And with that and with chopping down, you know, the deforestation, we're chopping chopping away at the knowledge as well. Yeah, I was so struck by that when I went up to Gama in northeast Arnhem Land, which where the Yolngu people live, and their language is the first language, English is the second language, um, and you abide by their laws, and they and they tell you when you arrive, you will respect the elders. They carry the wisdom and the authority. I kind of loved that because at the end of one sacred ceremony I went to, they said, you have been welcomed by the old ladies, you know, and it was such a great thing. It was like the queens, you know. Yeah. Um, and they also just tell you, don't ask too many questions, just listen. Just And all the people that do kind of mindfulness courses and um, things to still us and quiet, and you, you suddenly realise, in, you know, the Indigenous people for a very long time have been saying, listen to country, go out. And listen to country and you'll kind of find yourself there there's a beautiful reflection by a woman called Miriam Rose Ungamir Bauman and she's actually Australia's senior Australian of the year now but I spoke to her and she um, has this incredible meditation about something called Dadiri which is like an active listening and she ends up by saying um, may tiny drops of stillness fall through your day which I thought was really gorgeous if you can't go out into the desert you can still make sure that you have these moments of stillness that's beautiful there's a there's a chapter in your book called growing by the light of the moon I don't know uh if this is relevant to it but since your cancer diagnosis obviously you said it was it was um very severe it's an, abdom an abdominal cancer there's always that that and we want to be positive here and, and it's, you know, we're, we're, we don't want to be negative, but there is always that threat with cancer, isn't it, that it might return. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you stay positive in light of that? Um, I'm kind of heavily into repression, <laughs> which, you know, like I just try not to think about it. I just try not to think about it and I just try to do everything else I can. You can't entirely get rid of it but you cannot let it cripple you. Mm. And I do have a chapter in here about embracing like temporariness and there's some beautiful street art that people do. Like what's the point of that? Something that kind of blooms quickly, like, the you know, the mayfly obviously, which has such a short life. You, It's very rare to meet someone who has gone through a serious illness who hasn't said they live better afterwards. 
and they live deliberately and they live carefully, you know. I miss some things like abandon. Like I'd just like to run wild for a while and not know the consequences. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've got kids anyway, so that was probably out the door a while ago, to be honest. So, so yeah, I think that um, I think it's about that. It's just kind of bit about being de- de- deliberate. Julia Bird, I knew that it would be amazing to talk to you, and it has been oh, just just oh, wonderful. Are we finished. I'm just like starting. Well, ca- carry on. What, <laughs> no, hey, I'm kidding. Come on, I'm give kidding. us give us more. I can listen to no. you. I, I can listen to you talk all day. Uh, but but the book, you must be so proud of it, and I'm sure everybody who's been involved in it, I know it was a, a collaboration, and lots of your friends and colleagues have have really helped you. Uh, pull this together but it's beautiful it's it's just such a lovely book but there's so much to learn uh, from you in the book because you're so well read and you've you've explored the world and you've lived all over the world so I would say to anybody even if you're not quite sure what phosphorescence is there's there's so much more to this that you can you can take away from it. Wasn't that a lovely conversation with Julia? What I just learned so much on that episode. I just love her. Um, I love her positivity and I love her attitude to life, which is basically uh, be in your life, be you know, be present and engage with everything that's there, and and look for the good stuff that's all around us. Of course, you know, there's we're, we're all dealing with bad stuff, and and some more than others. But if you if you consistently look for the bad stuff, it becomes becomes sort of like omnipresent, doesn't it? And 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 really weighs you down. Whereas if you keep looking for the good stuff as well, that becomes much more a part of your internal dialogue. And uh, and that's what I really like about her. Yeah, and the fact that she's cultivating her own inner inner light, um, her own from, inner phosphorescence. Yeah, from from spending time in in these wonderful things you know in nature i mean you talk about that a lot you know that spending time in nature and how much we benefit from that and you know and those that that's been again there's been something that we've all kind of um experienced recently is been having that time out having walks and spending time in the in the natural world has been so beneficial to us and our well-being physically and mentally and i do like this idea and this thought and, and it's a reality that um, the good things, so those happy moments, uh, the joy and the awe and the, and the gratitude, there's sort of a reservoir for those things and, and they stay with you. So I talked at the beginning of the podcast about how I managed to sneak forest bathing into my last television series. And I, I did a, a whole sequence with a fantastic guy um, learning about forest bathing, which is um, it's called Shinrin-yoku in, in Japan. And that is just being amongst the trees and woodlands but for hours and you sort of soak in all the the hormones and the smells and you're engaging all your senses and uh, uh, the research that's come out about uh, about forest bathing is not only does it do things like it reduces your blood pressure it can help with depression um it lowers your blood sugar levels improves your energy it can help boost your immune system all of these very very positive benefits but the really interesting thing and i think that's what what julia has really touched on in her book is that there's a there's a delayed um impact a delayed positive impact on forest bathing they've worked out that if you spend 2 or 3 hours over a weekend in a woodland that the benefits of that will last for two or three weeks afterwards 
And that's great, which takes us all the way back to that horrible word that we didn't like at the beginning, lingering. So we should seriously consider changing the name of the podcast to Lingering Positivity. (laughs) Well, it's a bit like when you train your muscles, if you're doing sit-ups or you're bench pressing or you're doing dumbbells, your muscles continue to contract and react for days Mm -hmm. afterwards. They're still working. Yeah, your muscle Uh, memory. Yeah. And, and you still, they're still working out and you're still get you know, you're still building muscle. So I guess it's a bit like that. Yeah. So there we go. So that's, we're, we're going to have to discuss this afterwards. Do we call the this episode Schadenfreude or Freudenfreude or do we call it lingering positivity? I don't know. Well, Freudenfreude sounds like we're very, very intellectual. So that I reckon we should go with that. Okay. Let's, let's, let's try and see if we can get away with that, shall we? Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Little Bit of Positive. It's wonderful to be back. And we've got some brilliant guests coming up over the next few weeks that we hope you enjoy. They are, as you know, these conversations are meant to be uplifting, positive and make you feel happy in a lingering kind of way.